welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm alone on the line today while Kate and Madea are off this week. On this week's show, I'm speaking with Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein about her new book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. The Disordered Cosmos opens up with some very heavy science, explaining quarks, dark matter, and other phenomena that point to the limits of our knowledge about how the universe and everything in it functions together. But at the heart of the book is a series of questions about how the social construction of science both foments a toxic culture and might help us understand not only how to do science better, but how to do better science. Without further ado, let's get to that conversation. We are excited to have Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein with us on the show today. Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein is an assistant professor of physics and astronomy, as well as a member of the core faculty in women's and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire, where her research focuses on particles and cosmology, black feminist science, technology, and society studies. She joins us today to talk about her new book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred, published this month by Bold Type Books. The Disordered Cosmos starts out heavy and hopeful in its elaboration of some fascinating insights from the world, or I guess I should say universe, of particle physics that point to the limits of what we understand about the cosmos and proceeds with a differently heavy but hopeful analysis of how institutional racism and misogyny shape the world of science in ways that limit not only the production of scientific knowledge, but also our sense of where that knowledge can go and what it can do. Throughout, the disordered cosmos is buoyed by an indefatigable spirit, though I'm sure we're going to talk about fatigue at some point in this conversation, but an indefatigable spirit of wonder through which Dr. Prescott-Weinstein encourages all of us to be inspired by the beautiful complexity and unknowability that we glimpse in a clear night sky and which we might take with us as we struggle for more just and equal futures here on Earth. Welcome to the show, Chanda. Thank you for having me. So... I have to say, we were talking a little bit about this before the interview, but every time I have a particle physicist, which admittedly is not often on the show, but, you know, we recently had a while ago Clifford Johnson, who, you know, when I first learned that he was not just a particle physicist, but that he was the science consultant on Thor Ragnarok, I was like, oh, great. Now I can finally say that science proves that, in fact, dark matter is created by elves in a different dimension. He obviously disabused me of that. But can you explain to our listeners, just as a way of opening this up a little bit, what it is that you study when you study particle physics and cosmology? Yeah, so the fun thing about being a theoretical particle physicist and cosmologist is that actually you can be kind of broad. And so in my career, I've worked on a few different things. And a lot of doing work in theoretical physics is being responsive to like what's happening, what you're interested in. So I've spent a lot of the last, I guess, seven years of my career focusing on a hypothetical particle that we don't know is real called the axion. Mm. And the axion, not the axiom, but the axion, it has an (laughs) N on the end, I should clarify for people. This hypothetical particle may explain the dark matter problem, like it may solve the dark matter problem. And it also exists for other reasons, addressing other problems in particle physics. So it's a fun particle 
I really like working with it. I think like I'm now like strongly associated with axions because I've spent the last seven years working on it. I also do other things. I'm thinking about like the evolution of space time when it was less than a second old. And yeah, I have like a whole research group now. So I feel tempted to actually be like, and this is what graduate student number one and number two, number three are working on, but I will spare you that. I'm very enthusiastic about my group, which I have undergrads, I have a graduate student, I have a postdoc. So actually a lot of my work now too is bringing junior folks into the work and that's fun too. That's awesome. And you know, one of the things that fascinates me and which you get into in the book about this area of science is that it really kind of butts up against the limits of what's possible to know in the sense of like what our math and science make possible for us to know right now. And one of the phenomena that you focus on in particular, you know, besides your love of quarks, which were also a thing that I was like, oh, top, bottom, charm, like what is this, <laughs> is dark matter. Though, so, you know, I do want to point out that you do get into why that's a problematic term for this kind of invisible yet present matter that cannot be accounted for in the standard model of mathematical physics. So can you talk a little bit about dark matter and why it's so essential to the questions scientists are asking about not just the current function or properties of the cosmos, but how, as you were saying before, it came into being in the first fractions of a second? The idea of a dark matter actually goes back to the 19th century, I should say. And so people were starting to ask the question of what if there is stuff that we can't See that is out there. And what's kind of interesting is that the first person to kind of articulate something, he called it dark bodies, was Lord Kelvin. So if you've ever heard of one way of measuring temperatures is on the Kelvin system, this is the same Kelvin. There's a ginormous, like two volume, I don't know, it must be like 1500 pages biography of him that's called like Empire and something. So this is a guy who was like very enmeshed with like British Empire stuff that's happening. I draw people's attention to that because I think his use of dark and the way that he was thinking of dark had to be enmeshed with his relationship with like British empire, which at that point in the late 19th century is very much things are happening in India and other parts of South Asia and Southeast Asia in particular, as well as in Africa. And so the reason that we now believe that there actually is something that has been articulated as the dark matter is because there's simply a mismatch between how much mass we expect galaxies to have based on how many stars there are. So if you just take all of the stars and add up how massive they are and add all of the mass together, the stars are not moving correctly to reflect that mass that you get. And so the stars are actually moving too fast on the outskirts, on the outer edges of the galaxy. And that suggests that there's a bunch of matter there that we can't see. What's interesting about calling it dark matter, like setting kind of like the imperial history, the way that the word dark even came into the conversation aside, if you were to get a clump of dark matter and put it in your hands, so I can invite listeners who are not like in front of a car or holding a baby to like do this thought experiment with me. If you just hold your hands out and imagine a clump of dark matter being put in your hands, what will happen is that you will feel weight, something heavy in your hands. Mm-hmm. Like if you close your eyes, maybe somebody switches your baby out for like a baby weighing amount of dark matter or something like that. What you might think if you've heard the term dark matter is that you won't be able to see your hands once the clump is there. But actually, light goes right through dark matter. And so you would be able to see your hands, but they okay. would feel like there was something massive that's weighing them down in them. 
I think that's the way to have intuition for it should really be called like invisible matter or transparent matter. And right. since we are bookish people here, I will just say, you know, there's a lot to unpack there about the different meanings that dark takes on to different people in different cultural contexts. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to this later. And also how the sociopolitics of science as both like industry and institution reinforces those structures and shapes the very language that we have to talk about these things. I was also really taken by the chapter in which you deal with the difficulty of reconciling quantum mechanics, so the kind of quantum organization of the universe and its properties, and current theories of space-time. So the former kind of suggesting that, in fact, what you call the smoothness of everyday life, love that phrase, and the theories that we use to explain it, they might hold at the kind of most zoomed out level, but when you get down to the smallest, most discrete scales, they don't. Can you talk about, as a theoretical physicist, that conflict which both explains a property of the universe, but also which explodes that explanation at the very same time? Like how we sit with that doubleness, right? Of like, this explains how things operate at a zoomed out level at the same time as I have to own that at the most micro levels, it doesn't function. I would say part of being a scientist is maybe getting bugged by that kind of discrepancy in some sense. And what I mean by that really is that I think that too often the general public and even students of science, particularly in the early years, middle school, high school, undergrad, can get the impression that science is about what we know and it's just like a collection of facts. Mm -hmm. But actually the practice of science is about living at the boundary of what we don't know. And science is really about what we don't know. So it's easy to get the impression that it's just like knowing stuff because like, you know, you get these textbooks, the textbooks have like maybe problems in them, but your professor or your teacher or whatever always has the solution to the problems. And so it always seems like doing science is preordained solved problems that you just have to learn how to work through. But right. those are actually just test runs for getting to the point of when... What do you do when you are confronted with a problem where there is no solution written up and it is in fact your task to solve that problem for the first time in human history? And that's really what research is. And so first of all, I think being a scientist is about living in a space of confusion in some sense and understanding that in some sense your job is to take what seems like disorder and create some order there. And by order, I mean like a story that makes sense to you, right? I really think that what we're doing is storytelling. It happens to be that we use math as one of our most important languages for that storytelling. But nonetheless, we're trying to tell a coherent tale, usually as it moves through time. So lots of parallels with if you're a fiction writer, you're trying to tell a story in time. And we just have like a lot of rules that have to be obeyed. And so coming back to this question that you were pointing to about how do we bring our theory of gravitation together with our theory of quantum mechanics, and this is known in the community as the quantum gravity problem, that I think one reason that someone might feel driven to become a scientist is being like, that's a boundary of human knowledge that mm. I want to push. And I think that that's one way of thinking. And I also, I just want to point people to, you had an earlier episode where you had Clifford Johnson on, who is a string theorist at yeah. USC. And Clifford has his own like wonderful book, The Dialogues, which I highly recommend. That's what like, the interview was about. Yeah. Yeah. 
which I highly recommend. It's like family friendly reading. That's just like, it's this beautiful, like graphic novel style, popular science book. So this is Clifford's job is he's thinking through this one particular way of addressing this quantum gravity problem, which is this model called string theory. And they're really fantastical ways to solve the problem. And I don't mean fantastical in any pejorative sense, but really just like, I always like to tell people that like the universe is more wondrous and queer than we think it is. And I think that this is like totally in line with like Jose Esteban Munoz's take that queerness is futurity. Right. The horizon, the thing that we're always looking towards, but can't reach. Yes. Yes. And so I think in a lot of ways, like being a scientist is like queer as fuck. (laughs) (laughs) I think what is so surprising to me, and this is where like work like Clifford's, work like yours does point to, I mean, queerness is a great, and you use this in the book, but it is a great way of getting at it, right? Which is like Mm -hmm. the difference, the unexplainable, the incoherent, which nonetheless coheres, right? Like that's what I think I'm getting at with that, like the difference in unity, that it's like, here's the thing that is Mm -hmm. like structurally different or it operates differently than we would expect. And yet it also functions within a unity, which is actually like, I don't know, something of like a social hope, (laughs) I think for many of us. But that said, actually, much of the disordered cosmos also details to use perhaps like too zoomed out language, the race and gender problem that the scientific community, among obviously others, it's not alone, has been slow to address or even frankly to fess up to, right, to acknowledge. And at least part of that argument emerges out of the trouble that you alluded to with this term dark matter. And can you explain that a little bit for our readers who I think sometimes, I'm projecting a little bit here, but sometimes view science as it's objective, right? It's just the facts. It's just formulas. And your book, walking through the history of your area of science, points to the fact that, no, it's socially shaped just like everything else is. And that has impacts for our capacity to know and who gets to know. Yeah, I think I'll make the sociologist who might be listening cheer by saying like, look, if there are humans in the room, it's social. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Our very presence just like socializes everything. I mean, I guess maybe I wish that was true because our medical system might be different. So I guess like it's not, <laughs> not socializing in that way. But... I think that we have to remember that there is the universe outside of us, but then also we are part of the universe. Mm -hmm. And there are, gravity is doing what gravity is doing. And then there is us trying to interpret what gravity is doing and write down what gravity is doing. And that means that it is going through us, these social beings that as Mm -hmm. the incredible like Black woman philosopher Sylvia Winter has articulated we are a storytelling species. We are biocultural. And so we are not just things that move and think, but we are creatures that tell stories. And so in a lot of ways, I actually see what we do as a form of storytelling. And so, you know, just in context to bring that back to like the question of dark matter and and the name of dark matter, the actual phrase dark matter was really put in place by a cosmologist named Fritz Vicky in the 1930s who looked at the data about galaxies and saw the first hints of maybe there is a bunch of missing matter. And he called it dark matter in German, but this is the literal translation. Right. And then it wasn't until the 1970s when Vera Rubin, using an instrument developed by Kent Ford, actually went and looked at galaxies and was like, oh yeah, this is everywhere. 
that was our first confirmation of it. What's interesting to me about the phrase dark matter is the way that that language works differently on different people. And I was kind of hinting at this earlier. Mm. Like for me, for example, coming from the Black community where we have a lot of internal conversations about, for example, colorism, we are using the word dark in ways that maybe white people aren't using the word dark. And the historical impact of what that word means and how it shapes people's lives is very different. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'll just take this moment to say, and I think that it's really unfortunate that white people don't spend more time talking about colorism, right? Because like at the end of the day, colorism is there in service of like white supremacy, right? And so there needs to be that accountability among the primary beneficiaries of colorism at the end of the day because of the way it supports racism. Mm -hmm. But at this point in time, it continues to be like very much an internal conversation. And so I think that the way that the phrase dark matter works among Black people who are used to dark being evoked in a certain way can be very different. And so there is just like the social aspect of, it may not seem like a big deal until you realize that people are walking away with a not good intuition about what dark matter is simply because of their associations with the word dark. We're speaking with Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, author of The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Brian Dillon on the line with us today. Brian's new book is called Suppose a Sentence, and he is calling in to give us a book recommendation. Brian, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend Inventory of a Life Mislaid, which is subtitled An Unreliable Memoir, which is a new book by Marina Warner. Hmm. Okay, tell me more about this book. How did you come upon it? So Marina Warner, uh, who people may know, is the most extraordinary cultural historian, uh, writer of fiction, essays, art critic. Uh, She's such a rich and intellectually amazing and stylistically extraordinary writer. And Maybe a decade or so ago, she started publishing some essays, I think originally in the London Review of Books, about her own family history. Marina spent her early years of her life in Egypt, in Cairo, where her parents ran a bookstore. Her mother was Italian and her father English. And this book traces a long history of uh, of her family through objects, through images, through letters, and so on. It's a story about multiple different kinds of uh, displacements. And she's been writing since the early 70s. And this feels like a kind of culmination of so many strands in her intellectual and, and literary life. It's really extraordinary. I'm only about 100 pages in, but it feels so rich uh, and important. Wow. That, well, that sounds fantastic. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? So it's Marina Warner, and it's called Inventory of a Life Mislaid. Thank you so much, Brian. We've been speaking with Brian Dillon. His latest book is called Suppose a Sentence. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, author of The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. Right, and, and this is also a problem with like the presumed 
objectivity of science, right? I, I'm I'm pulling this out in the kind of way that we usually see the humanities versus STEM, right? Humanities totally subjective. Anything is open to interpretation. STEM is everything's totally objective. It's universal. It's provable. I mean, one of the things that I love about your work is that it's like actually, actually, it's not quite, or like in certain modes, it's not that way. Um, but again, the sense that like the objective is universal when in reality, that objective in objectivity is a cover for white European cisgender male perspectives, right? And there's right. one moment that you you kind of note an article that you had submitted was rejected as kind of quote unquote, not a good fit because of voice. And basically mm. what they wanted was what passes as standard voice, which is a white male voice and probably, I mean, I'm a white male, but it's not my voice either. It's a straight white male yeah. voice because that's what they feel appeals to broader publics. And I really appreciated how you pushed back on that in the book and was wondering if you could just tell our listeners what you see becoming possible when science can be spoken in many different voices. Yeah, and and I would actually even extend your point that it's really like a het cis white male, right? Like they're not sure, particularly yes, yeah. looking. They're not looking for our our trans fam uh, either, right? Right, um, right. Yes, very and, good point. And you know, the thing I want to say about objectivity, I've definitely had the experience, particularly in you know having conversations with folks about the release of the book, that I have gone into some conversations where people were clearly waiting for me to say, yes, I think that Black people will come up with different laws of physics than white people do. And like a totally silly proposition here about like how much melanin anybody has in their skin or like, I'm you know, what horrifying things that Christopher Columbus did and, and the, the fallout from like 1492, like the stars are rotating around the galaxy, whether or not Columbus knows what direction he's going in or like whatever, right? Yeah. I think the, the more crucial point is that our decision about where we focus our energies is a social phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And there isn't any objective decision-making process that says, yes, this is the right path of research that we should put all of our federal resources into versus this other path of research where we should put none of our federal resources into. And, you know, there's been lots of conversation. Maybe I'll bring this up because there are two queer people here just talking about the decision to not spend money in the 80s understanding HIV and AIDS. You know, I guess like maybe I'm I'm dating myself a little bit, but I lost people. Like I, I grew up with that and a lot of people grew up with that. And there was no objectivity that was determining don't spend federal research money on that. That was a completely human, violently, like literally murderous um, yeah. decision by by homophobic people in the government who just basically said, we don't, we don't care. Right. And so um, that's like a really good example of how like science in some ways became like a battleground for social justice that like act mm. up. Literally, I, I've always loved the name ACT UP, but ACT UP really mm -hmm. had to say, no, we deserve science that will save our lives. That was part yeah. of what ACT UP was, was demanding, was science that will save our lives. Okay, someone might say, yes, I sort of bite about the life sciences, but what about, like, where does this come into play in physics? In physics, the conversation still comes up because, you know, research shows that even though it's hard to articulate, are queer people underrepresented in physics or not? Because the numbers of 
what percentage of the population is queer is always changing. I'm so excited. Sure, yeah. They're queer as fuck. It's very exciting. That if someone feels, despite the fact that queer people might not be underrepresented, there's certainly a marginalization. People are still experiencing transphobia. They're still experiencing homophobia. And that means that people are more likely to leave and they take their interests with them. And that means that their interests there isn't that person in the room to advocate for their interests from their point of view. Mm-hmm. And that certainly shapes like what problems get worked on. So I, I, I think it's very easy to look at the ACT UP example and to look at HIV and AIDS and say like, oh yeah, I understand in the life sciences when you're determining which bodies are important, there's some subjectivity, but how could that be in physics? But that subjectivity continues in physics um, by, you know, no one person has like a total perspective on what we should be working on. And so there is a fabric that we kind of make that determines what the the research picture looks like at any given point in time. Yeah. And and also, I mean, just as something to add on to the end of what you're saying is that it also shapes like who, you have a chapter on this, like who gets to think of themselves as a scientist. But I think that all these things about like who you see in the room, I mean, I can definitely say for myself as like a gay person, it's like you feel channeled into certain like areas and away from other ones, right? And that's a loss for all of those areas, right? That it's like, it's a loss for science that people who are not the kind of standard image that you see of the scientist at the front of the room, you know, are not moving into those fields. And a lot of it is, I think, this kind of, I don't see myself there or I don't see social messaging that tells me that people like me should be in these kind of rooms, you know? Speaking of, I want to, in the Disordered Cosmos, you also recount your own struggles as a Black queer femme navigating a staunchly not-that world in particle physics. So, and you recount moments when you felt exhausted by all of the additional labor that you, as like a body and a mind, are expected to provide the system over and above your cutting-edge research, right? Which is always so like, you have to do all this other stuff, but if you don't do the cutting-edge research, then you're not you're not even considered. And I think that's something that almost every woman or person of color and a number of queer people that I know working in higher education will absolutely recognize. But can I ask you, for example, what animates you when you feel dragged down by that kind of fight? Like what keeps you in the work and how can we build black, female and queer futures in the sciences and beyond? Small questions. Yeah, small (laughs) questions. I mean, like the one thing is is that I'm still really excited about the universe. And 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 you know, that's one of the reasons that the book opens with the science is because I actually Mm -hmm. don't think that you can get to where we're going and in the second half of the book if you haven't gotten a sense of like, oh no, she really cares about this weird particle stuff. And that and your joy is infectious. It really is. Even when Yay, I can understand like a fraction only of the things that you're talking about. It's the joy is truly infectious. Yeah. So I, I think that that was an important, I think, strategic piece in the story that I was telling was that in order for people to be compelled by the struggle, they need to understand what motivates the struggle. Mm. And we can talk a lot about what science loses when when people like us aren't in the room. And I'm always a little bit hesitant about that particular line of reasoning. Like, no doubt it's true 
but I'm also seeing that, like, for example, just today, um, Congressman Khanna uh, from California, along with like Chuck Schumer, unveiled this thing that they're calling the Endless Frontier Act, which like we can have Oof. a whole conversation about the name Endless Frontier, frontier. in an American context, right? I'm not particularly interested in the national defense arguments for why science should happen. And the Endless Frontier Act is explicitly articulated as China's beating us. And this is like basically like just our new new Cold War. And as someone who's, mm-hmm. who's partners with a, a Taiwanese American and who is watching the rise in anti-Asian violence, I'm reading this in that context of what does this do to our ability to be in good relations with people across colonial um, and state-based borders. So that's that's part of like thinking about like black queer futures is like fuck these borders. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just like that, that that's not what I want to I don't want borders to be my motivation for doing science. And so I want to bring it back to we are a storytelling species. We tell stories. We are motivated to tell stories in different ways that are shaped by some combination of our DNA and our cultural milieu and and who our family is and and what we get exposed to, some of us are going to want to tell stories using math about the the origin and history of space-time. And to be ourselves means to be allowed to tell our stories. And if that is our story, then people need to have access to the resources to tell that version of the story. And so this is about letting people be their full selves. And again, um, you know, I... I, I worry that a lot of people just didn't see this thread running through the book, but I really think, you know, that's a, it's a black, it's a queer um, model for, for the future, which is letting people be their full selves. And so for me, it is um, about allowing people to be fully human and that some people are not allowed to be fully human. And, you know, the question of like what animates me is, you know, I really like my science. I also have like a wonderful queer community, Black community of scientists. I want to particularly name um, Joe Osmondson, who is a sometime Los Angeles Review of Books contributor, yeah. um, who whose name pops up in the book at least once, maybe twice. A couple of times, and, yeah. Yeah, and who also read a draft of the book and, and gave me feedback on it and was one of the people who really pushed me to bring Jose Esteban Munoz into my thinking. And I also want to name Brian Shuvey, who is a, a, a gay theoretical physicist at, at Harvey Med College and, and one of my collaborators and, and I would say dearest friends. And also Lucienne Walkowitz is, an, is another queer person that I'm regularly in conversation with. But I have a community of scientists, of particularly um, physicists. Joe is a biophysicist. Lucienne is an astronomer. And Brian is also a particle physicist that are in community with me. There's also, um, I have like what's called my Bonnets and Bottles crew, which is a bunch of like black scientists. I'm I'm the only physicist in the group. So I often like don't understand any of the science stuff they're talking about. Um, (laughs) They're like all biologists. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. That's too big and also too small at the same time. You have to have community supporting you because society won't support you in your efforts to articulate a full self. And Mm. again, I think that one of the things that those of us who are queer and Black bring to the table is we know how to um, survive in those conditions. Yeah, that's true. I have, you know, as we kind of wrap up here, so throughout the book, but particularly in the the latter portions of it, 
you you talk a lot about how science can kind of be conscripted by um, you know these kind of sometimes referred to as kind of totalitarian aims, right? Or these, as you were talking about before, kind of the aims of state, right? How can scientists be kind of pulled into a Cold War effort that? perhaps they don't really feel like supporting, but hey, that's where funding is, like this is what we're doing, yada, yada, yada. So I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about both the scientists' role in kind of those ethical questions, but also the institutional barriers that they often face. You know, for example, I'm much more familiar with the academic market on the humanity side, but I have heard anecdotally from others that it is just as difficult to secure tenure track appointments in STEM research, for example. And this, as you pull out, point out in the book, the kind of continually shrinking public funding for universities and for scientific research means that it's being funded privately and private interests have different interests than public interests. And, you know, just to tee it up a little bit more, your concerns about, for example, there's a, a note about kind of Elon Musk's uh, SpaceX. And this is like, my husband doesn't really always agree with this, but it's like really great to see somebody reflect my concerns about like, okay, but how is science going to be used? Who are space explorations winners and losers? What does it mean when that's privatized? So all of this is perhaps an impossibly long way of teeing up a question about how you think that kind of the researchers can function in a system that isn't always bending towards justice and also how you see the current state of funding for the sciences. Yeah, so I think here I need to mention my mom, Margaret Prescott, as a reference point for me. She's one of the national coordinators. She's based in Los Angeles, and she's one of the national coordinators of the global women's strike. And the slogan of the strike is invest in caring, not killing. And so I think it's really important to bring that into the conversation, which is, I, I think, you know, in some sense, doctors have some version of like first do no harm, right? That that's, right. that's, I mean, scientists don't have anything like that. And I think that we, <laughs> we need to have something like that. And, and I think particularly like physicists, you know, one of the reasons that physics got so much federal funding for a long time was because of the Manhattan Project and the perception that we could advance military interests and, and the interests in, in developing newer and more terrifying and globally destructive weapons. Mm -hmm. And how does that conversation change if invest in caring, not killing is one of our fundamental principles that we are here to, to, to bring life? And again, you know, the life in the form of, you know, that storytelling, that that is about um, becoming our full selves as, as a species to, to wonder about the universe, to, to want to know the universe. And so part of what I wanted to do with this book, sticking around in a world where investing, caring, not killing mm. is our primary value. That rather than saying, well, we can't do that kind of physics in that world, to say here is a way in which that this physics can be part of that world. And I think that that was really important to say here is a post-war, like a true post-war, not like post-World War II. Now we're in Korea and Vietnam and right. Iran and Iraq and all of Latin America mm -hmm. um, and Afghanistan, the list goes on, right? But like a true post-war you know, Star Trek-y vision 
um, where we're just doing it because it's a thing that we do and it's it's like the arts. And I really think that we have more in common with the, with the arts than we tend to think we do. And, you know, just to mention, like, one of the barriers is coming back to this question about private funding, which I should say, by the way, I currently have a grant from a, a private funder, and they've been fantastic. I'm also very aware that they don't have to follow any federal rules and regulations, which means that, like, you know, if they decide to take a left turn, no one's going to be like, hey, that's a really terrible left turn. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing to stop them. There's no public accountability because they just got the cash. They can do what they want. So right. it's fantastic that right now they're doing great things with their money, but there's nothing holding them to continuing to do good things with their money. Not that the federal government's always done great things with its money. Sure. Either, right? Yeah. Yeah. But in theory, in theory, there's some democratic accountability, right? Mm-hmm. That like um at, in practice, maybe not, but in theory. One of the ways that this works on us as individual scientists is that I have to go out and get grant money to support my research group. Like I was just mm-hmm. having conversations about like how to distribute money and how much I can afford to pay someone, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And If I have to go out and get research money and most of the money is over in the Department of Defense and me getting research money determines my ability to build my group, my ability, therefore, to publish papers and therefore to get tenure. And support students, like to raise the future. Yeah. If if I really like if I want to have students then the pressure is, well, why won't you go get that Department of Defense money? And I'll just say, like, I won't go get that Department of Defense money. Mm. I also know that I'm hurting for not getting it. I'm I'm not hurting, like, spiritually, but I'm hurting professionally. Right. 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 And so I see that as one of the ways that we are coerced. And if you're not strong in your values, if you weren't, you know, raised by Margaret Prescott, (laughs) (laughs) um, but you shouldn't have to come from a family that places a high value on investing in caring, not killing for that to be what you bring to the table. And so that means that we need structural change where those pressures aren't even there. Could not agree more. Unfortunately, we could keep talking about this forever, but uh, we'll end it there. We've been speaking with Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein about her new book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. Chanda, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the Lab Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotton. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz. <laughs>